Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us. And Lord, we thank you that you are our good, good Father. Lord, as we celebrate Father's Day today, Lord, I thank you for all of the fathers out there who who love their families, love their wives, love their children, who care for them and give their love to them. But Lord, most of all, we thank you that you are our perfect Father. Because Lord, we recognize as fathers how often we fail. We never can measure up to your perfection, but Lord, you are the perfect Father. We look to you for example, but Lord, we know that we can never lift up to that. And Lord, we are thankful for your goodness. We're thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your love and your mercy. So today, Lord God, we celebrate you as our Father. Now, Lord, today as we come to this time of service, we worship you now, Lord, by opening up our ears and our hearts to hear your word. And Father, I pray that you would speak to us today. Send your spirit upon us. Open our hearts. Open our minds. Let us hear what you have for us today. These things I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Continuing our series in Galatians this morning. Galatians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 18 this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Now, my granddaddy always used to say, a man is only as good as his word. You cannot trust a man who fails to keep his promises. That's just the the truth. A person who wavers on his word, wavers on his promises, is not worth his weight in gold. I mean, he's not a a worthy man to trust. You cannot trust him. Uh, So, a man must be a man of his word. Now, if that is true of man, how much more is that necessary to be true of God? I mean, think about that. What would God be if we could not trust him and take him at his word? What would it be like if God was untrustworthy? What would it be like if we lived in a universe where the creator of the universe would say one thing and do quite the opposite? I mean, it would be a horrible life for us, wouldn't it? But praise be to God that we serve a God who is faithful to keep His promises. God's promises are unfailing. God's promises are unfailing. And that's what Paul is directing our attention to today in our text. He wants to show us that God's promises are unfailing promises. We can trust the Lord our God. Now you remember, as we are, those who have been with us, uh, you remember as we're going through the book of Galatians, Paul here is defending the gospel. He is defending the gospel. He is defending the gospel against legalism. 
He is defending the gospel against legalism. The question has arisen in the churches of Galatia and is the question for us today, how is a person saved? How is a person saved? How is a person justified is the term used over and over again in Galatians. How is a person justified? How is a person saved before God? Is it by works of the law? In other words, by our doing, do we earn our salvation before God? Or is it by God's grace? Is it by our doing or is it by God's doing? You know, a recent survey showed that 52% of Protestant evangelicals actually believe that salvation is partly by faith in God's grace and partly by works. 52% of Protestant evangelicals believe that salvation is somehow affected by, somehow based upon our works. 52%. That means 52% of Protestant evangelicals have bought into a false gospel. Because as Paul shows us in the book of Galatians, and as he has been showing us, and as he will continue to show us in the book of Galatians, is that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period, nothing else. It's not no way, no how, based upon our works. If it were somehow based upon our works, we would be in trouble. But praise be to God... It is not based upon our works. Salvation is based upon God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's aim in chapters 3 through 4, if you remember, the first half of the book, he is showing us that justification, that salvation is indeed by faith alone. That is chapters 3 through 4. And then uh, chapters 5 through 6, he begins to then show us the Christian life in accordance to that truth, that the Christian life is also based upon faith. But here we are focusing in on the, what is salvation, what does it mean to be saved, or how is a person saved. Now the last two weeks, Paul has shown us how we can know that salvation is by faith alone. And two weeks ago we saw that uh, we can know that justification is by faith alone because of the gospel message itself. The message, the good news that God has delivered. We can know that because of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. And we can know that because of the testimony of Scripture. From beginning to end, salvation has always been by faith in God's promises. And then last week we added to that a bit. And then we said we can know that we are justified by faith. Uh, because by faith we are by faith we are redeemed from the lost curse and guaranteed God's blessing and God's blessing there we define as God's eternal life with God God is the blessing and to live all of eternity with God that is the blessing that God promises us through his through his promise in Jesus Christ so today we continue this discussion 
And today Paul continues to build his case on on salvation by faith alone. And today he points us to God's unfailing promise. God's unfailing promise. And here he shows us why we can trust in God's unfailing promise. So today, today I want you to know that you can trust God's unfailing promise. You can trust God's unfailing promise for salvation. And today I want to show you this by showing you three reasons why you can trust God's unfailing promise. Three reasons why you can trust God's unfailing promises, and we'll see that in our text. If you found your place there in God's Word, please stand with me now in reverence to the reading of God's Holy Word. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15, hear the word of the Lord. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. Who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. Three reasons why you can trust God's unfailing promise for salvation. The first reason is this. God's promise is irrevocable and unchangeable. God's promise is irrevocable and unchangeable. Look there in verse 15. Paul says to give a human example. Now you remember this is all building upon that last uh, paragraph which ended so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And now he is here giving a human example. He is bringing it down on our level of thinking. Even with a human, uh, hum, excuse me, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. He brings to our mind this idea of a covenant. This idea of covenant. Now, we, we need to understand why he's bringing this into this discussion of justification by faith alone. Why is he bringing it in here? Because throughout Scripture, God defines his relationship with man through covenant. God defines his relationship with man through covenant from beginning to end. He, he begin, he, that's how he defines his relationship with man. That's his way of communicating that relationship with us. That's... He's bringing it on our terms. God brought it on our terms from the very beginning. Now, throughout Scripture, we see, in the Old Testament, we see two basic kinds of covenants. First of all is a covenant of works. The covenant of works. It is established with Abraham, or excuse me, it is established with Adam in the Garden of Eden. 
And with a, a covenant of works, there's, uh, there's a condition involved. There's a condition involved. Uh, if you do this, I will do this. And we see that in the Adamic covenant, that first covenant with Adam. God comes to Adam and Eve and he says, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and have dominion over it. And here's the Garden of Eden before you. All of the fruit of the Garden of Eden, it's yours to eat, except for this one thing. That tree that's in the, in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of its fruit. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, there's the, there's the condition. God says, here's the garden. I'll bless you. I will keep you. I will be your, gar your God. Just this one thing. Don't eat of the fruit. If you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And what did Adam do? Adam, he went and took of the fruit. And on that day, he died. Now, he didn't die uh, physically on that day, but on that day, he died physically or spiritually. He died spiritually. On that day that he partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, his relationship was, with God was ended. It was cut. It was severed. He died to God. And later on, that came into fruition as then he died physically. But on the day he ate of the fruit, he died in his relationship with God. Another example of the covenant of works is in the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is a national covenant. It's a national covenant between God and the people of Israel. And God went to Israel, the Israelites, and he gave them his law, his Ten Commandments, the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. The social law, all the elements of the social law, which was the way of putting the, the Ten Commandments into practice in their everyday lives. And then there was the ceremonial law, uh, having to do with the sacrifices and the Day of Atonement and all of the, the holidays and, and celebrations that they were to keep throughout the years. And God said... You do these laws, you keep my word, you keep my commandments, and I will bless you in the land. But as we, we looked at last week, we talked about this last week, there was the blessings, you keep my commandments, you do my law, and I will bless you. But if you fail to keep my law, I will curse you, and I will take you out of the land. And Israel, what did Israel do? Israel failed God. They failed to keep the commandments. They turned away from the Lord, and God sent them out into exile. He cursed them. That's the covenant of works, but there's also the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. And it first appears with Abraham. Abraham is the first to receive the covenant of grace. God comes to Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham, and it's a covenant of grace. It is established, first of all, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. God comes to Abraham in the land of Ur, and he says to Abraham, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. 
And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a covenant of grace. Did you notice something about that covenant? Did you notice a key term that kept occurring, that keeps occurring over and over again in that covenant? It's this term, I will. God says to Abraham, I will. I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and, dis- and curse those who and I will curse those who dishonor you. It's all about what God will do. And there's no condition there. There's nothing that says, Abraham, do this and I will. No, it's just I will. God says to Abraham, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's all about God's grace. It's all about what He does. And not about what Abraham would do. That's the first covenant of grace. Uh, That's the major covenant of grace, the overarching covenant of grace. And then it is just kind of continually clarified throughout Scripture and other covenants going on then throughout the, through the Old Testament. Then we come to the Davidic covenant, that is the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7, chapter 9 through 13. Here again, the Lord comes to David and the Lord says to David, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make you make for you a great name like the names of the great ones of the earth and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own places their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies moreover the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house you when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne forever. And so God comes to David and he he further clarifies this covenant of grace. He told Abraham, I will give you a place, I will give you a people, I will protect you from your enemies. And now he comes and he tells David, here's the protector that I'm sending my people Israel. I'm going to establish your offspring, a king after your, your seed, from your seed. I will establish his kingdom for an eternal kingdom. This is the protector and savior over God's people. And then he further clarifies it when he comes and he tells us of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Hear the word of the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand, or took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, 
though I was their husband, declares the Lord. That is the Mosaic covenant. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it, uh, I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. So you see, God, throughout the Old Testament, He comes with this covenant of grace. This covenant of grace. There's the covenant of works that has not been able to be kept, that men have failed to keep, but then God brings hope of salvation through the covenant of grace. And it's all about God saying what He will do. I will do this. I will bless you. I will protect you. I will save you. It's all about what God will do. Let me tell you, dear friend, that's what salvation has been about from the very beginning to to the end of Revelation. It's all about God's covenant of grace. It's all about God's covenant of grace. About what He has done and will do. Now, why the covenant? Why does God communicate His relationship to man through covenant? Because a covenant is irrevocable and unchangeable. A covenant is irrevocable and unchangeable. This is the way God communicates to us to to help us understand that. He he does it, He defines His relationship by, by giving us something that we know a little something about. And so that's why he bases it on a covenant. Now, this is a little strange to us because we don't typically make covenants so much in our day. Uh, This is kind of a foreign language to us. But a covenant, you need to understand, was something that was irrevocable, unchanging. Once it was set, it was set. That's why Paul brings this out. Even a man-made covenant, once it is set, it can't be annulled, it can't be done away with, it cannot be changed. And so this is the way God communicates His love for us, through a covenant. Now, a covenant is different from a contract. We think in terms of a contract. But a contract, you have a contract between two equals. And a contract, yes, it's, there's binding uh, to it, there's a binding nature to a contract, but if the two parties wish, the two parties could tear up the contract, right? You can get out of a contract. There's ways to get out of a contract. There's ways to void a contract. But there's no way out of a covenant. There's absolutely, positively no way out of a covenant. Once you enter into a covenant, that's it. It's sealed. It's over. It is there. It's established. It's over. We see the picture of a covenant when God ratifies His covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, we see the ratification of the covenant with Abraham. God comes to Abraham and He seals the covenant, if you will. He seals it. He comes and ratifies it. He gave it to him back in chapter 12, but now in chapter 15, He seals it. He ratifies it. He brings it into its fullness. He he makes it official, if you will. 
And so he comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be great. And Abraham goes on and says, well, what can you give me, Lord? I have no seed. I have no offspring. And he says, oh, well, I'm going to give you an offspring. In fact, Abraham, look at the stars and see the stars. Number them if you can. So shall your offspring be. And Abraham says to God, he says, God, how can I know? How can I know that you will do this? And so God tells Abraham, he says, bring to me, uh, let me find my place here. God said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all, he brought he brought him all these things and cut them in half and laid them each over against the other. So Abraham takes these animals that God has given him, commanded him to bring him. This was the way that you did a covenant. This was the way you sealed a covenant in that, that age. You would take these animals, you would cut them in half, and you would separate them, lay them aside, one after the other. And then the two parties of the covenant would come together. They would come to terms. Here's the covenant. Here's the conditions. Here's all the elements of the covenant. And so they would walk through those animals together, those parts together, and they would basically make this covenant together and saying, if either of us fail to keep the terms of the covenant, let us be torn asunder. Let us be torn asunder, just like these animals. Let us be torn asunder. And so you see, a covenant, it's lasting, it's binding. There's no way out of it. To get out of it means someone's got to be torn asunder. And that's the covenant that God made with Abraham. But it gets better. It gets better because when Abraham did all of this, when he laid all of these pieces together, he was sitting there waiting on God to show up. And then in verse 12 of chapter 15, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will sojourn in a land that is not their own not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And after they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your father in, fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And here's where it gets really good. Then, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot, which represents the glory of the Lord, and a flaming torch passed between the, these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Did you see what happened? Did you see what happened? God come to, to make this covenant with Abraham. And then as Abraham sitting there waiting on God, come on God, we're going to make this covenant together. God puts a, a deep sleep over Abraham. He sets him over to the side. He puts him into a trance, into a, a sleep. And then God comes by Himself and He walks through the pieces. And God is basically saying when He ratified the covenant with Abraham, 
Here's all the conditions. They're all on me. If I fail to keep any of the conditions, let me be torn asunder. Let God be torn asunder if I fail to keep my promise. Oh, do you see the beauty of the covenant God made with Abraham? This wonderful covenant of grace. God's promise is like this covenant. It is irrevocable. It is unchangeable. It will never, ever fail. Oh, praise be to God, dear friend. You can trust God's unfailing promise because God's covenantal promise is irrevocable and unchangeable. Second, God's promise is Christ-centered. We can trust God's unfailing promise because God's promise is Christ-centered. Notice again what he says there. If you flip back there into Galatians. Notice what he says there in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, that is plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul brings this argument down and he, he focuses in on the tense of the word. This is a singular tense word. It is to the seed of Abraham, to the offspring of Abraham. The one offspring, not the many, but to the one offspring. The singular, the promise of God, the inheritance of God that he promised Abraham was to Abraham's offspring, the singular. It was to Christ. All the blessings that God promises in the covenant of grace, they were to Christ, to Him, and Him alone. Oh, well, what does that mean for us? Well, you see, Paul is also drawing our attention to not only the singular nature of this word, but the, the collective nature of the word as well. You see, it, it's singular, intense, it's singular to Christ but it's also collectively for all those who are in Christ. You see, Paul is looking again at that covenant. And in a covenant, there's always a covenant head, the head of a covenant, the representative of the covenant. The one to whom uh, God has made this promise to. The one to whom uh, all of the, the hopes and the promises of this covenant rest upon. Let me explain it like this. You think about the head of state. Let's think uh, uh, particularly as, as, as in a monarchy. You can't really say that with presidency because presidents, they come and go. But a monarch is one who is the rightful heir of the throne. Think about Queen Elizabeth. She is the rightful heir of the throne in Great Britain. And she is the Queen of England until the day she dies. She is the representative of the Queen of England. And so to wage war on the Queen, to offend the Queen, is to offend Great Britain. But if you, you, you make peace with the Queen... If you bless the queen, then that is to make peace with and bless all of Great Britain because collectively, Great Britain is in Queen Elizabeth. They're in her. She is their representative. She is their representative head. And so, 
all of Britain is in the queen. Well, Jesus Christ is the head of the covenant of Abraham. He is the promised seed of Abraham through whom God would bless the nations. And as long as we are in Christ, then all the blessings that are due Christ are then poured out on us. But therein lies the key. We must be in Christ. How are we in Christ? How do we become part of Christ collectively in Him? It is to trust in Him. To believe. By God's grace through faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Like I say, Paul always brings this out. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam was our representative in the Garden of Eden under the, the covenant of works, and Adam failed. So in Adam, as Adam is our covenant head, in him we all sin. In Him, we're all condemned. But Christ, being the covenant head of the covenant of grace in Christ, we have all the blessings of God for us. So we can trust in God's unfailing promise for salvation because in Christ, God's promise seed, God, all of God's promises are then secured. But, but, dear friend, you have to be in Christ. Are you in Christ today? Are you trusting in Him? Are you resting in Christ today? So you can trust God's unfailing promise for salvation because God's promise is irrevocable and unchangeable. And because God's promise is Christ-centered. And third, you can trust God's unfailing promise for salvation because God's promise is supreme over the law. God's promise is supreme over the law. First of all, it is supreme over the law chronologically. It is supreme over the law chronologically. That's what Paul is getting at here in this verse, this text. This is what I mean, verse 17. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So he's saying chronologically it's supreme because chronologically the, the covenant with Abraham came before the covenant with Moses and the law. So chronologically it is supreme. And second of all, qualitatively, qualitative, <laughs> that's a tricky word, Qualitatively, it is supreme. That is, the quality of it is supreme. Look there at verse 18. Verse 18 says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Look at the quality of the covenant of grace. First of all, it was initiated by God, right? It was initiated by God, but God. This is God's doing, not man's doing. This is God's doing. 
Second, it was accomplished by God. It was accomplished by God. I remember all the covenants that I read earlier. What was the key word, the key term in there? I will, I will, I will, I will. It's about what God will do. God accomplishes all the terms of the covenant. He accomplished all the works of the covenant. He fulfilled the law in Christ Jesus. When Christ Jesus came and obeyed the law of Moses fully and wholly, He obeyed the law. He obeyed the Word of God. He obeyed the commands of God. He did His Father's will all the way even to the point of death, even death on the cross. He fulfilled the law of God. But He also then brings us and guarantees us the blessings of God as He gives us His own righteousness. Oh, praise God. God accomplished the law. He accomplished uh, the, the covenant. But it's also, but also God completed the covenant. God completed. This is a covenant that is completed by God. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now that term there, gave it to Abraham, it's the, uh, the, the Greek term keruzomai. Keruzomai. And it comes from the Greek term charis, which is the, the word for grace. Grace. And it means to give or grant graciously and generously with the implication of goodwill or on the part of the giver. So this is grace given. This is grace given. And furthermore, that word there is in the present tense. In other words, it has already been accomplished. It has already been accomplished by God. The work is over. It's complete. And so, in essence, what he is saying here, God has grace given to Abraham the inheritance of the promise. He has already done it. It's already over. It was graciously given by God. When was it graciously given by God? The moment he made the promise. And it was further completed when Christ died on the cross for our sins. And was raised again, assuring us of eternal life. God's promise is supreme over the law. Oh, the Judaizers, they raise this question of works. They want to make salvation about works. Why would they want to do that? Because... If we, do, if we accomplish something, if justification, if our salvation is by works, then we have reason to boast, don't we? That's the whole reason why legalism comes back into the church over and over again. People want to make it about the law. They want to make it about good works. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 2 through 5, For if Abraham was justified works, he has something to boast about. If we are justified by works, if we're saved by works, then we have something to boast about before God. But Paul goes on to say there, but not before God. Because what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, it's about faith, not works. It's not about anything that we could ever do because we could never do anything to win merit with God. We can never do anything to overcome the mountains upon mountains of sin that we have over us. But Jesus came and He tore down the mountain by 
living a life in complete obedience to God's will, yet going to the cross and dying on the cross, not for his disobedience, but for ours. And on the cross, he paid for our sin. He redeemed us from our sin. He fulfills the promises of God. And in him, all the promises of God flow. Dear friend, if you're trusting in your own works, then you're looking for a way to boast before God. But you cannot boast before God. Because salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. We have no reason to boast before God. For God's promise is supreme. Dear friend, you can trust God's unfailing promise for salvation because God's promise is irrevocable and unchangeable. It is Christ-centered and it is supreme over the works of the law. 52% of Protestant evangelicals believe that salvation is by, by faith and works. And so there, therefore there's a good chance today that, that there are those even in this place that are, you're holding on to that belief. You're trusting in your own ability somehow, some way to save you. Oh, maybe you want to tie it to, to God's grace somehow. Maybe you want to tie it to faith a little bit. But you want to trust in your own ability to save yourself. Dear friend, you cannot do it. Faith in God's unfailing promise leads to eternal life, not your works. Not your works. Trust in God's promise. You can trust God's unfailing promise for salvation. Trust in Christ. Trust in God, what He has done through Christ for your redemption. Dear Christian, what does this mean for us today? This doctrine, it puts an end to all of our boasting, doesn't it? It puts an end to all of our boasting. Oh, we could do wonderful things in our life, but none of those things could ever bring us to boast before God. Whatever we do good in this world, it's only good through Jesus. We can never boast before God for our own works. It takes an end to, it puts an end to all of our boasting, but furthermore, it fuels our worship. It fuels our worship. My goodness, when we realize that there's nothing we can do, there's nothing that we need to do, for Christ has done it all. He has accomplished it all. When we trust in God's promise, it does away with our boasting and it fuels our worship. We should stand in praise to God because of His great, unfailing promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But there's some here today you've never trusted in Jesus. You come here today and you're, perhaps you came here even today to, to put another notch in your belt, to, to write another check on the wall, say, look God, look what I'm doing. Maybe that's why you you're came through those door to, doors today. So maybe somehow, some way, you can win a little more favor with God. Dear friend, you will never, ever, ever realize the salvation that God has to offer through your works. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. 
But God has provided the way. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus. Trust Him, that's it. Nothing more. There's nothing else for you to do. So God invites you today. I invite you today. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Trust in God's promise fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus and God will save you. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unfailing promise. The promise that you gave to Abraham that stretches over generations all the way to us today, Lord. Through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth are blessed. Through Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth are blessed. Oh Lord, thank you for your blessings secured in Jesus. And Lord, if there's those today who do not trust in your unfailing promise, Lord, turn their hearts today. Turn their hearts. Let them see Jesus. Let them see your faithfulness. Let them trust in you. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Stand with us if you will.